Welcome to a new episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. You know what? It's been a really long time since we've done episodes around CSS. So guess what? On this podcast episode, we are diving deep into the CSS ecosystem and how it's changed over the past year or so. And in this episode, we are joined by Chris Coyer, obviously, is going to be very helpful to cover CSS to really to dive into the topic. Chris, can you give a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Oh, I'd be glad to. Thanks for thanks for having me on the show. Big fan of the show. Can't wait. That's going to be cool. I I was kind of curious. I mean, you said it's been a long time since it doesn't. Is CSS a big? It's not a particularly big topic for this particular show, right? I mean, it's part of the front end. It gets definitely gets to. We should do it more. Is the, I think that's the problem. Is like we haven't covered it deep enough, and I think that. I've looked back on like how CSS has changed so drastically just in the past little while that it's like, why haven't we been talking about this? So I'm stoked to have you on. I can't believe we haven't had you on sooner. So now we're making up for lost time, Chris. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, right on. I work on this app called CodePen, which there's all kinds of CSS on because that's kind of the the gist of it is this kind of social front-end coding environment thing. It's a very simple online editor where you know, you get these three boxes for HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, and you and you write them, and people use it for all kinds of different reasons. A lot of people just they just are showing off, and they build amazing things uh, that are just fun t- to look at. And so, the social part of it is that when you go to the homepage of CodePen, uh, especially when you're logged in, because it uh, through the through the power of AI learns what you like as you browse CodePen. I don't know if everybody knows that, but it's kind of you know what you click on and engage with and stuff is kind of informing a little model of like, I bet they'll like this too kind of thing. Uh, and you can just see see what's what's cool and what's happening that day. There's enough activity there that it's 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 worth checking out like a like a social network is. But I think most people use it to just go and try something out. They're like, I'm having a problem with this or I want to explore this idea or something and make room, you know, what we call pens, which are just little basically little websites. And, uh, and then share them with their team. Sometimes they get, I don't know, they use it to get sign off from a client or something or to, to fix a bug or to answer a Stack Overflow question or, or whatever. That's what the, the code pen editor it is. And that's my full-time gig. You know, I have a co-founder, Alex, who, uh, you know, we co-own it together and a, a small team of people keeping it going. And we're, we're hard at work with kind of a code pen 2.0 that hopefully there'll be a beta of soon. That's my that's my big thing. Although the big CSS connotation with me is that for a long time I ran this blog called CSS Tricks. That was my baby for a long time, and, and a little over a year ago, sold it because it was it was too much for me to <laughs> run both CodePen and, and CSS Tricks, and I had an offer on it. So DigitalOcean is the owners of it now. That is really cool. I remember you telling me that at Render Atlanta, and I had no idea that you had sold it. So that's exciting to uh, maybe free up more of your time. And we're going to see more features in CodePen, which is cool. Dang right. I don't know. I've been working in a, I've been working in, in front end for a long time, and I've never heard of CodePen or CSS Tricks. <laughs> and this guy, Chris, I've never heard of him either. So we're going to have to ask him. Some I got some work to do. <laughs> <laughs> Jam has just been living under a rock. That's just what I'm hearing from this comment. <laughs> and I guess, yeah, Chris, what's your favorite happy hour beverage? Oh, man, that's a good one. I've been real into the the rum old-fashioned lately. Just a good dark rum and a bitters and sugar. <laughs> 
Nice. Yeah, you, it's such a such a simple one that's so good. So I like that. All right. We'll also give introductions of panelists. Stacy, you want to start it off? Sure. Stacy London. I'm a principal front end engineer on Confluence at Atlassian. Hey everyone. My name is Cole. I am a all kind of engineer at Netflix. Jem <laughs> Young, engineering manager at Netflix of the Growth UI platform and the web platform. And yes, I'm absolutely familiar with code front end. CSS. <laughs> don't don't at me on Twitter. They're like, Jeb, what do you even know front end? Yes. If they didn't catch the joke, right, Jim? Some people, after all this time, still don't pick up on my sarcasm. So I got to be really clear on a podcast. Maybe that's good feedback for you, Jim. You need to be like very clear on that sarcasm. <laughs> it wasn't wasn't my place to call it out anyway, because I can't be like, but Jim, surely you've heard of me, the famous me? Come on, man. Nope. Never <laughs> nope. heard of you. Never <laughs> Nothing. Met you. <laughs> Certainly I've never had drinks with you at a conference. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> awesome. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm an engineering manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all, we will all take a drink. We've been struggling with like, what's the best one to come up with for CSS? But what did we decide for this topic? Layout. Layout. <laughs> Layout. <laughs> yeah. Yay. All right. I mean, CSS and layouts, obviously, it's it goes hand in hand. So that'll be good. Cheers. 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 All right. Well, let's dive in. Chris, like we'd mentioned a little bit about Render Atlanta. You gave an excellent talk at Render talking about a lot of like the modern CSS. And that I think is a great area for us to kind of dive into. Maybe let's start with like, what are some of the new features that you've been excited about, have used or just excited to be using? Uh, ooh, I just get to pick whatever I want. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and nice. let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. You know, if I had to pick one to just to start with, just because I hope more people like know about it and start thinking about it and using it, especially because it has, uh, it's dropped in stable Chrome. Um, and dropping in Chrome is like a big deal these days, right? Because it goes in edge automatically and all those people using arc and, um, whatever. So I feel like it's a pretty copied browser engine these days. So you get a lot of mileage when things drop in Chrome. Is the uh, View Transitions API? Have you all seen that one? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, clutch. that's sick. It's, it's so really cool. cool. It comes in these two forms. One of them, the, the JavaScript API is just one. It's just one call. Like so, as far as wrapping your mind around it, um, it's it's quick too. It's called Start View Transition. And you just like, however the DOM is before that call, it just it just knows that, I guess. I don't know. You don't have to do anything special. And then you call start view transition and change the DOM in some way. And then when that function is done executing, uh, it knows that be like, okay, the DOM has changed in some way. This div that was up here is now has now changed its styling properties or is in a different position in the DOM or something. And be like, I know what to do. I will tween it from from where it was to where it is now. And you get that tweening for free, tweening like like that old school flash word that was like, yeah, move, move the color, the size, the shape, yes. or whatever. You just get it for free. It just it just does it. You and and you have to write zero lines of CSS if you want to get that like div to move from one place to another. And you know just because you can't help but thinking about it while you're sitting with a bunch of Netflix people. That, the <laughs> Netflix UI is full of that crap. You, you click on a thumbnail of a thing and it expands into a, and it's not even, it's, it's like every app does that. What, what I think about is when you pick up your phone and you look at it and you're, and then any, 
anything that you do on a phone is just loaded with view transitions. You click an app, it goes whoop, and it opens up. And then you click on uh, uh, your a podcast in Overcast or whatever you use, and it like zooshes over to the left and shows you the episodes. And you pick the episode, and it zooshes down and shows you that there's zooshing all day, every day on mobile apps. And it's it's not even because it's just like, that's what's hip right now. It's like, that's the grunge of right now or something. It's like, no, 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 we're, we're well past that. It's because it's a design pattern that it's just better. It makes people understand what's happening. It's like, oh, I've moved from a list of items to a single item. And when I do that, I, there's almost this concept of like ne- uh, object permanence. In, in it's almost an ac- accessibility concern. It's like, oh, I, I get what's happening because th- the whole world didn't just disappear and then reappear in a new state. I saw it move away. So it's gone because it moved away. Like, I can't see the cheetah anymore because the cheetah walked away from me. It's almost like caveman, right? Like, I <laughs> understand what's happening because things moved. So that's that's just established as a thing to do. And yet, the web platform had no way of helping us with that necessarily. If you wanted that to happen, and you're moving from a list of items to a single item and the URL is changing, it was like, eh, well, too bad. It's just gonna it's gonna change. So that that JavaScript API I mentioned, if you change the DOM without the URL changing, you call start view transition and it will tween them for you. And like I said, you need no you don't even write have to write a single line of CSS to make that happen. So I guess it's a, a JavaScript API. But if you want to, they expose all these CSS things to control it. Not just how long it takes, but do you want it to turn 90 degrees while it's doing it? You know, what, what do you what do you want here? Do you want to change opacity while it's happening? You have full CSS control if you want it. And we'll see how that shakes out. Like, do most people take advantage of that or not? I don't know. I kind of suspect some will, some won't. Kind of like when you do a transition today, a lot of people just say, I don't know, transition 0.2 seconds or something. They don't bother specifying a, a special easing quality or something. It's like some do, some don't. But the, so that's the, the first kind of it. There's the second kind of view transitions, which instead of being all JavaScript, is all CSS and, and, and HTML. Really, you put on on HTML nodes, you put this special CSS property that we. <laughs> I'm trying to can I sneak the word layout in here? So <laughs> cheers. That, that, cheers. <laughs> you give it a view transition name. And then if you, if you click a link, it's like the, you know, the way that a browser does prefetching and stuff, it like goes and gets the new HTML and the new CSS of the new page. And it really quickly looks to see, oh, is there anything else that also has that view transition name? If there is, I'm going to do that same tweening thing between the things that have the same view transition name. So nothing can have the same view transition name. If you, if you even have two elements that have the same one, the whole thing just aborts. It's like, I, I re- refuse to participate. So you have to be real careful about giving things only the one existing name. And then they'll move, but, but the beauty of this, there's no JavaScript involved. Not a line of JavaScript requires that to work. And I, you know, the refrain so far about all this is like, that's incredible because Believe it or not, people they might not even phrase it this way, but sometimes people pick SPA frameworks, meaning 
you're using React Router or whatever, or you're using Next or you're using Nuxt or some kind of framework because you get that, because it opens the door to the possibility of what does it feel like to, to move from page to page and can I control it if I want to? Now you don't have to make that choice that you can have. You could have a 100%, not a line of JavaScript, old school website and still build those like mobile like transitions of how things move around and totally control it in CSS. That's huge. Thanks to everyone involved. Good job. <laughs> hey Chris, can we uh can, can I take you on a side quest real quick? Because you brought up a really interesting topic that I don't know if we've really covered, which is uh that idea of thinking about how humans interact with your with your UI is something that as developers we don't really do. We're like, oh it looks cool, but why is it cool? Why is it important to have this button like bounce a little bit? What's what's your stance on UX design? Uh, to me, like an underrated part of, of front end, but someone who actually studies how people are interacting with your page and how does that relate to that kind of view transition and that natural movement that makes sense to people? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if I have any like real, I've never like academically researched it myself. So a lot of what I do comes down to like, does that feel good? Does that... Does that seem like the right call? But then balancing that with like, I'm just one person and we build websites for all sorts of people. So you got to think about that stuff too. One of the things I think about, let's see if this is relevant to, to what you mean, but like that classic mobile one, you know, like from a list of items to one item, like I was talking about that, you know, so many apps have, it's just kind of, kind of a classic on a, on a small screen that's in your hand, that like movement of the whole screen over to another screen is like kind of fine. We're, we're, we're used to it. Maybe if you're really sensitive to movement, you might go into your phone settings and change. Uh, there's generally kind of a reduce motion setting in, in, in everything from, from desktop to, to mobile operating systems. But like that one is, I feel like probably most people aren't terribly bothered by it. I, I don't know. Like I said, I don't have any academic research, but a lot of people leave that on. Whereas on the desktop, if I'm looking at a giant monitor right now, if every single thing I clicked moved the entire page, 2000 some pixels to the left, you'd be like, Whoa, you know, that's, you get that vomit comet thing going on. You know, that even if you're not it's really susceptible to some people are very susceptible to it. And that would definitely, but even people that aren't normally susceptible to it, you'd, I think a, a while of browsing, watching 2000 pixels constantly flying by, it would be too much. And so that's what I think is, you know, you're using intuition, but, but you know, you're using movement to help what's going on, but not too much, you know, like I'm sure I'd like to, have Michael Pollan's take on web animation, like use animation, not too much, mostly <laughs> quick, you know? But I think that's the cool thing though, too, with it being native to the browser too, is that it's going to feel more seamless where it's like, if you have any like janky feeling that, you know, we've, we've been there with like, Chris, you mentioned flash or even like JavaScript of us having to do this all on our own or use a framework the browser allowing this natively just makes it so much smoother. And I think that in itself makes a better transition too. I'm sure we, someone out there is going to make it as obnoxious as possible with the CSS controls on it. But, you know, for the most part, it should be fairly seamless. Like it should be that like just I subtlety. So. 
Yeah, I don't. So, even, I don't envy the people that had to, to choose the defaults for it because that's that's tricky for for a new thing. Be like, every, you, know, you make a website and you put a hamburger menu on it, and you click and you're like, "Ooh, you know what? I'm going to have it slide out." And then you use your own hamburger menu about 50 times, and you're like, "You know what? I, I mean, I need to make that about." three times as fast because that's freaking obnoxious how long it's taking out and then you do it open another 50 times and you're like screw that transition that thing's just got to open because i can't i I cannot wait for it anymore it's driving me crazy you know that uh, that that's tricky and if they get these defaults wrong it might drive people away from using them at all because they're like oh it feels so sluggish you know and the web is so good about backwards compatibility stuff. I'm, I'm not sure if a, a transition timing qualifies as a breaking change, but <laughs> the web is pretty hesitant to uh, to change stuff once it's already there. Well, that's the beauty of the view transition API that I'm seeing. What you're saying, Chris, is they don't have to do much out of the box. They get a lot for free. And I think the beauty of that is over time the operating system can optimize what is the ideal experience for the user or how these transitions should evolve over time. And that allows the platform to create consistency, to create leverage, to give those users those accessibility options. Whereas if the API required more hyper-customization, I think we would find ourselves back in the land of jQuery and global style sheets. And Mm. that was fun. Yeah, that's a good point. It makes me, you know how sometimes the spec doesn't say stuff, like it intentionally leaves out implementation details because that's like an individual browser concern. I think of like the calendar picker or something or the input type equals date. They that the spec doesn't say it just says very vaguely like it should allow the user to pick a date you know like that's about what you get and then if you're on the WebKit team at Apple or something you just got to be like okay I guess we're going with weird dial things you know or <clears throat> but it doesn't say on purpose because it, I wonder if that is similar here and that and then it says well you know the element should tween to itself but it it doesn't have to be 0.2 seconds you know if apple decides it's 0.18 seconds then that's what they're going to do i wouldn't be surprised yeah and like today we might prefer smooth flowing pages but tomorrow might be the year of just instant flashing pop-ups or whatever i hope not but that allows the platform to uh, evolve what the user experience looks like consistently across applications right and they did put the I don't know if primitives is the right word. That's what came to mind. The, the, like the, the APIs or whatever involved so that if you want to take control, you know, whatever, Netflix would take control. <laughs> you wouldn't, you, no, I don't think you'd just leave it to browser defaults. You know? Anyway, that's cool. That's a, that's a big one. It gives a, just a huge, huge thumbs up from me for, for a thing that I never thought you'd be able to do. This whole last year was just a, just jaw dropping, like, we were told our whole lives this was not happening in in CSS and all of a sudden they're like oh you want to select the parent of something yeah you can do that now and you're like wait what that was a that was a that was a thing that was not happening and they're like oh not only did we do that but we made it way better it's not even just the parent but it's like conditional and you can reach up to the parent and then back down again if you want to <laughs> you like solved everything we'd ever want to deal with with selecting with the has selector in css and it's like i just i haven't even i'm just still reeling from it i don't i don't think i fully have it in my brain yet like you know opportunities that i probably should be reaching for it but I'm so conditioned to assume that it's impossible. 
that one's that one's wild. And then we got it right off the heels of of container queries, which is you know this ability to write a media query for an individual component that were also was you know very clearly expressed from the powers that be that you you are not getting this <laughs> ask about something else you know we're, we're sick of hearing these requests for container queries it's not happening and they're like oh actually we figured it out here you go unbelievable i mean yeah. between those three things happening in like one year it's like oh my god it's yeah. crazy that's wild so good time to be a css developer weird time to sell a css blog but <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, what are you? What are y'all excited about? I mean, we're, we're we we're bringing CSS to front end happy hour, you know? Yeah, the container query stuff. I I just want to talk about that more, just because like how monumental that is. Like, how much JavaScript have we all written to achieve that particular layout? Cheers, effect of cheers of container queries. Is it truly? If you go to like, can I use? I mean, is it truly? You can use yeah. it in in modern all modern browsers now. Yep, amazing. that one's ready to rock. That one's a, a, absolutely amazing, especially because it. I like it when they are like simpatico with what what front end developers are doing anyway. And that I know this has been a long time now, but it's like the paradigm of we are building in components now has has taken over. I mean, I I, I guess that's clear to everyone, but. At the same time, a lot of us are like, oh, but did you know that WordPress is 42% of the web or whatever? I'm sure you hear that one ad nauseum, right? Something, this incredible statistic about WordPress. WordPress websites are built from PHP templates. They don't have components. PHP doesn't have like a great component syntax. So that huge quoted number is probably not individual developers crafting each one of those websites from scratch. They're people that just go to wordpress.com and pick a theme and roll with it but still the number is staggering there are lots of custom design websites there is a big chunk of the web that doesn't doesn't think like people that use modern javascript frameworks think when they make a website and i'm talking about they're all there as much as there's fun little fighting and stabbing between the view people and react people and svelte people and solid people and all those people. They all, they all build crap with components. They all have props or attributes or whatever. They all build their own little nested tree of, of component tree. That's how they all work. And so, okay, I like it. I, I like it so much that I wish WordPress would figure it out. I want to build old school websites that way too, which, you know, I, I guess, you know, you should use web components. That's a whole other story, I guess. But that's sort of like the native web's answer to this component tree system. But okay, we're building things with components, right? So I don't, I never think about where it's going to be used. I just, I just thinking about this bubble that is a particular component. So if I'm going to write styles for that component, I have no idea how big the page is. I can never write a media query because I just don't know how big that component's going to be, nor do I want to know. It's like information that should not be in my brain when I'm working on an individual component. Thus, the only tool available to me to size or make styling decisions based on how big it is, is a container query. So it's not just like, hey, that's a good idea. It's, hey, that's the, that's, that's the thing I sh could and should be doing on every single component in my entire code base. Yeah. And if you need to like ask, like, how big is the screen really? You still have stuff like viewport units. Yeah. If you're still like, oh, how, how big the text should be, actually should be perhaps have something to do with how big the entire browser screen is. Well, you can still do that. The amount 
of JavaScript that I've seen to try and, and basically do what container queries do. There's like this whole community of, of JavaScript people that are obsessed with performance and performance tuning, yet that kind of JavaScript to do all these measurements and recalcs is like some of the like most gnarly, unperformant code that I've mm. ever seen. And it's just like right. to it, 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 people just get into trouble very quickly with that logic. And it's like, to me, so exciting that you can say, don't, you don't have to worry about that. Like the browser's hyper-optimized to figure this stuff out and to kind of be able to mm. rip out some of those performance, like foot guns or whatever you want to call it. Cause you're like, Whoa, oh, which JavaScript thread should I use to measure this DOM element? <laughs> I think I'll use the main one. Yeah. That's the only one. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's, that's just been classic forever. Any scroll event or resize event, the JavaScript had no option but to fire that thing just constantly, which was led to some pretty horrible code over time. Now there, I you know there's it led to better stuff like intersection observer and mutation observer, and there's there's better ways to code some of that stuff possibly now. But every time something like moves down the stack, and view transitions is a is a is a a thing for this too that you just get some of that performance stuff you know quote unquote for free that's just great you know i saw just a i think it was a post yesterday here's a here's another minor pivot to this thing called scroll driven animations in in css so they're it's kind of like being able to attach a keyframe animation instead of over a period of time over how far you've scrolled in something so if you're saying keyframe key at 42%, it's not 42% of a duration. It's 42% scrolled through that element. And you can attach it right to the body element. So you have you know, 0 through 100% scrolled through the body. And so you can do cool stuff like as you're scrolling down, have uh, things fly in or whatever. You know, I'm, I'm trying to give you tasteful ones, but there's plenty of tasteful demos out there. A really classic demo is just one of those reading bar indicators, like how far yeah. am I through this article? Um, that's what their their performance demo was, was a blog, one of Google's blogs, like web.dev or whatever it is. And it was it was comparing doing that with JavaScript because you, you have to attach it to the scroll event to on scroll fire a little JavaScript function that then asks, okay, well, how far is this element scrolled through the thing and report that? And that's fine. It's actually not that bad these days. It used to be like real bad to attach anything to on scroll. And I feel like, I don't know, maybe browsers optimized or computers or got better a little bit. You can get away with it a little bit, but in their demo, what they did is they put some arbitrary heavy JavaScript running. So it's just a set interval loop and the set interval measured something. And that's enough. If you have like an infinitely running set interval that's measuring something, that just sucks for the main thread. It's just going to gobble it up, you know? So they, you can click a button and it would start that heavy JavaScript loop. And then you could scroll down the page and you could watch that bar that's supposed to be filling very smoothly across as you scroll down about every, you know, maybe half a second it would jump to the next position because the browser is only giving up one frame every once in a while outside of that set interval loop and it was so janky you know it's the perfect kind of thing then they were like okay i'm gonna do the same exact demo really simple code instead use a scroll driven animation and fill up that bar 
that horizontal bar just based on how vertically far you are scrolled down the page and then turned on the heavy JavaScript again and you can scroll up and down the page and it's just buttery smooth still how much that you know and that's a contrived example of you know like that's not but it's a good one and then it's like it when you can pick something that do, it doesn't matter what else is happening on the page it like keeps its you know buttery potential ah, that's great <laughs> and usually that means like if i can pick it up and put it in css it's gonna do that pretty cool scroll driven animations i'll put that on the list that's the yeah that's that's one i didn't even wasn't even aware about so that's really cool another one that stands out for me is some of the changes to color right that was a big thing that's i don't know when it was added but more of like how we're dealing with colors and it actually, was a it was this year yeah more colors. Yeah. Un unbelievable, right? Like the world's always been how the world is, but somehow we designed monitors and such. I mean, it, it was just a limitation of our time. I'm sure you can imagine yeah. an old Commodore 64 or whatever that just had 16 colors or 256 colors or whatever. That's just where technology was at the time. So when we invented programming language, just they, they were just capable of expressing what those colors were. It's just gotten weird in our heads because once we got to millions of colors i think we all just kind of assumed that like yeah that's that's probably all of them right like i think we I think we got it with millions of colors i don't know how much more you need or at least in my brain it's like even if we only have millions of colors at least you like you got the edges right and then maybe if you got more colors you'd just be filling in little gaps between those colors but the edges are right the edges were not right the edges were wrong unfortunately so like if you want to express like mega mega pink yellow green these are like colors that in this new p2 color space is um they're way extended so before this all happened if you wanted to express the pinkiest pink you could it was it's lame now if you look at the two color swatches next to each other wow way it's just way more extreme. And now there's all kinds of, um, it's P3 color space. Did I say P2? That was misspoke, by the way, in case there's anybody out there. You'll, you'll just get about. someone tweeting at you and saying, no, yeah. it's actually P3. Actually. That's fine. But that's a color, that's a color space. So that like the conceptual model of colors, okay, P3, great. And there's other ones too, but P3 is the, the big one that matters right now for us on the web. And it has these potential for more color. But then in CSS, how you call colors in that space can be different. So if you, there, what there isn't, there's no such thing as a hex code that can display a P3 color. It's not possible because it uses the sRGB color model. And there's no way to say, hey, browser, I want to I want to write a hex code, but I want to express that in P3. You can't just because of the limitations of it. So you have to use some new way to reference color. And there's a color function that can do it. But for the most part, you're you're picking a new color uh, uh, function or something to do it. And there's there's you know there's really cool ones like uh, uh, LCH and OK LCH allow you to reach into that that color space and do it. And th they. Th the, the, their color model has interesting characteristics. Like this is the nerdiest stuff I've ever seen in my life where they made a, like a, um, like the sRGB was just a cube. They're like, Oh, programmatically colors will just be coordinates on a cube. That's where the color is. But they're like, Oh, it turns out that when you map color onto a cube, it doesn't have, it has some like kind of sucky characteristics. Like if you, if you're going to draw a gradient from blue to yellow, 
in in a cube and then programmatically choose the colors between there, it goes through like gray. So you're like, oh, that's unfortunate. But what if you don't want it to go through gray? Well, that's okay. You can use, in CSS, you can do multiple color stops and you can avoid gray if you want to. But so many people are just like, I just want a gradient from blue to yellow. Could you please just do that for me, please? Different color models came along and said, oh, in our color model, when you go from blue to yellow, it goes, it just is much more aesthetically beautiful path to get there. And all these color models have different different paths to, paths to getting there. But an even better one is, this is one of my favorites of all time. There used to be, uh, what is it, HSL? That's a color thing in CSS. That There's hex codes and there's different ways. HSL was a good one. Hue, saturation, and lightness. And it made it really programmatically easy to work with color. Because if you had some kind of red color in HSL and you wanted it to be lighter, you would just increase the L value at the end of it. And you'd be like, okay, now that's a brighter color than I had before. A lot of us that use SAS used to love that. You'd be like, lighten, and then you'd percent, yes. you know, and you'd get a lighter version of it. Well, now that's come to, you know, to a CSS color model as the, or color function as you just you change that value. But there's this big problem in HSL. Um, the problem is that if you adjust a color upwards 10%, depending on what starting color it was, it could feel very differently. It could feel like one color was really cranked up. 10% was like too much. Ah, stop it. Or 10% was not enough. You know, you'd really have to turn those dials differently. Whereas in the OKLCH model, they somehow dialed in it so perfectly that if you change the color 10%, it perceptively looks 10% brighter no matter what your starting color was. It's just like a characteristic of that color model that's really cool. So like, why not use that? If you're a designer and working in CSS as well, using that color model just has that side effect that's really nice. It's like, wow, I get better gradients and I get more perceptive lightness and I can reach into the P3 color space. And it's like, holy crap, you know? So you kind of kind of got to know that, especially because it's it's almost part of a a time period where like, Remember, I, there was an awkward time where like some people had high density monitors, but most people didn't. And for the people that did, if they looked at like a JPEG that was too small, it would look really janky. And like favicons for, for high density display people, you, there's this era where everybody's favicon looked like crap if you had too nice of a monitor. Yes. Yep. It was like a transitional period. We're kind of in a transitional period where the more and more websites use the full spectrum of colors from P3, it, there'll be a period where like those websites look good and then they start to look normal. And then the ones that don't are going to look drab. You're going to be like, you're clearly using a limited color space here. So I, we're just entering that phase, I feel like. So yeah, that's a big one. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, colors, colors getting wild. We get a, even a little more stuff too. There's kind of a relative color syntax that I'm excited about that you can, you can, you can tweak the individual values of any of any color space. Like right now, if you have a hex code of orange and you're like, I'd, I'd like to manipulate that, you'd be like, oh man, I can't because it's not in HSL or LCH or something useful in which I can tweak one of the values. It's just a hex code and I don't know how to tweak hex codes. You know, very few people do. But you can use the relative color syntax. Just it's You just call a function called color and say from that X code. And then it kind of like destructures the color into individual values of the color space you're moving to. And you can, you can start with the hex code and say, give me 10% more lightness or more hue or shift on it or something and do that no matter what your starting color is. Pretty cool. That's super cool. Cause 
just being able to the the math of that, I like recently like dug deep into that math of um, this was for Trello for building out themable things like your board background that you pick, you know, is some image and you say, oh, we know the dominant color on that is this hex code. Um, and that's what I had to work with was the hex code. So I had the hex code of the dominant color, but all the math that I had to do to like transform that into HSL is what I chose because I needed to adjust lightness. And part of that was like accessibility stuff. It's like, oh, you're throwing text on there. So you need that color to meet contrast ratios so people can actually read that text on this like dynamic color that you have no idea about and auto ratcheting the lightness up or down. And like, that was all good. Like mathematically you could figure all that out, but there were still these scenarios where like it met, you know, Wikig uh, contrast ratio, but it just, you know, blasted your eye with saturation. And it was like, what kind of algorithm can we apply to it to make it not so saturated, but maybe like more pleasant on the eye. So like all these new color options and ways of doing the math around them and making it easier is just, yeah, it's super exciting. I don't know, like, that's not like a common thing that a lot of developers are like thinking about or working on. That's like kind of this hyper-specific thing with themes, but I, don't, I just ran into that recently. So I was like, oh, colors, I'm really excited about these new new ways of um, yeah, doing math around color. Yeah, I used to and talk about plucking something out and moving it to CSS. If you were in a situation where you need to do really dynamic things with color, you're in JavaScript territory. And now you just don't necessarily need to be, or at least less, less so. Pretty rad. Yeah, it's okay that it's specific. Not every website needs it. Not every website needs drag and drop. Not every website needs file upload, you know, like, but some do. So help us out here. Yeah. So Chris, I'm also interested, like we've talked about a lot of the great features that are here today. What are some things that you all want to see for the future of CSS? Like what are things that we're still missing that you would love to see? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got stuff. Not, I'm almost like, happy to wait almost for <laughs> just them to surprise us in a way because we got so much this year and I've heard I've I've you know heard interesting people be like just wait there's so much more coming <laughs> to be like really like I my brain is starting to run out of things that I that I think we need only because it's so amazing what we've got so um but there's still stuff I mean a, a big a big hanging one to me is the uh animate to auto which is like I I have this thing that is collapsed to zero or not on the page at all. And I want it to enter the DOM and then expand to however big it naturally is. Like, let's say it's a P element, a paragraph that just has absolutely arbitrary text in it. You have no, you have no idea how, how large that's going to be in CSS. There's no way to express in CSS animate from zero to however tall you are. There's just no syntax for that. Um, you can't say height, you can't animate from height zero to height auto. The browser just will ignore that. And, but you should, and it should be that simple. It should be like height auto should just be a valid option for how, what you can animate something to. That would be cool. There, again, something that JavaScript often ultimately does, you know, it'll like grab that paragraph element, render it somewhere that's not height zero, get the you know, get bounding client wrecked height on it or whatever, then it knows the number and then sets that value somewhere and animates to that. JavaScript often gets involved in that way. Or there's little workarounds where you can animate to like max height, I don't know, 500. That's probably taller than it will be 
So I'll animate to that, but that's not very specific that it animates to the 500 and it might have been done at 300. So your timings get all off and stuff. That seems like a low hanging fruit. I'd like to see this here. I got, I, I had to do a bunch of like um, cl click and drag to resize stuff recently. You know, you can tell the code pen interface is full of that, like grab a bar and drag it down, you know, and now, now the top area is bigger and the bottom area is smaller. It seems funny to me that CSS can't help with that. There's not really a resize mechanic that, that works great in that way. There is a resize property in CSS, but it, you ha it has to be overflow hidden on the thing. And it gives you this tiny little, these two tiny little black dots in the bottom right corner of whatever it is to resize. You'll notice it from a default text area. Text areas are naturally resizable, but you can make a div, for example, resizable too, if you want to. But all you get is that tiny little thing at the bottom right yep. corner. You can't say, give me the full bottom bar of the div. I want to resize that. That would be, that would be great to me to, again, not have to resort to JavaScript just to do I should be able to use, say, uh, with some layout, I should be able to say display cheers. grid, have cheers. two. <laughs> cheers. <laughs> I should be able to set two grid columns right next to each other, have that separator in the middle, and then just drag them. Resize them. Why can't I do that in CSS? I'd love to be able to do that. That's just a couple of things. You know, I'm almost more excited. It's, it sounds like there's so much momentum with uh, improved CSS that they probably have some stuff in mind that they're going to go with. Although, you know, doing it based on actual author feedback is probably a good way to go. But we got nesting too. That's amazing. It's a ding near drop yeah. across all browsers. That that's was huge. Like that's something that we've been doing in preprocessors forever. And yeah. like, I'm so excited to have that native CSS. Yeah. Yeah. For, and for, isn't it interesting how most of this stuff is just applauded? Like this whole episode, we're like, oh, I can do that now. Oh, I can do <laughs> yeah. that now. <laughs> there's 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 not that much people being like, ooh, are you sure that's the right direction for CSS? You know, I feel like we're we're due for an age like that too. Like it's time for some infighting and some <laughs> people being salty about stuff. Let's do that. Let's go back to GeoCities. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> I like what you said there because that that's it for me. I think about the days where I used to have to make like nine sliced tables to get rounded corners. And there was the age Ew. of every design had rounded corners. And so you would spend hours just putting like table cells and rows together, images, PNGs, making sure that the images were transparent, making sure that the color space is right. And what I see happening with CSS is that's being replaced with these shorthand properties or these um, more convenient solutions like the view transition API. And I'm looking forward to more of that because when you think about some of the harder things to do in CSS with layout, cheers, it's gotten better with things like logical properties and grids, but there are still a lot of custom design work that requires heavy-handed CSS, like when you want to take up a full screen or something. Things like that are becoming easier, and that's what's most exciting to me. Um, and one question I have for the developers out there is, you know, as CSS is getting more advanced, do we even need less or SAS anymore? Yeah, I just explored that the other day because I had that same thought that you did. And I was like, well, let me just look down the list of stuff that SAS does and see if see if we got it now. And we got, you know, 80% of it maybe. There's a, a handful of things that that it doesn't have. There, it doesn't have 
um, like at if in SAS, you could say at if and then a variable and then else. So you could you could do really conditional CSS. You can't do a in that clean of a way with custom properties. SAS also had loops, which we saw a lot of at, uh, and still do at CodePen because you know maybe you have like a hundred DOM elements and you're trying to like apply a slightly different transition to all of them to have like a staggered effect or something. There's some reasons to have loops in SAS that way. You don't have to write like nth child one, nth child two, nth child three, nth child four, you know, a hundred times. That's not maintainable code. So you'd write a for loop and output the variable that way. No loops in CSS yet either. Those are two pretty significant ones. You know what my favorite one is that pisses me off about CSS is just slash slash like JavaScript does and so many other programming languages have. Single line comments. Yes. 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 I forgot about how painful that is. <laughs> That's very obnoxious that you, there's no single line comments in CSS. And I'm sure there's big time historical reasons. It's probably a breaking change to even Adam now. So we probably won't get that, but that would sure would be nice. What about an easily stylable select component? Like that today is still like everyone rewrites the select they a did million that one times. though. You, you look at uh, look up select dash menu. They made a new HTML element that behaves exactly like the select element does. Only this one, you can you can just select it and style it, do whatever you want. Crucially, the the inside of it, the option elements were always harder to style than the the select itself. You always had a little control over that, but when you open it, you had nothing. Yeah. But the select menu, which I don't think it's done done yet, but there certainly yeah. was some prototypes in browsers that, that are allowing that. Yeah, that's a big one. That was, I, I think, as far as like going around asking developers what, what's one of the most painful things you have to do, that one always kind of topped the lists. As, and, and it topped the list for good reason, because it topped the list if you're trying to do it right. You know, and the the classic thing is like, oh, sure, I can I can write a div with an on click on it that that opens up another div that has a bunch of options in it. That is super inaccessible. For one, it's a click only. Did you handle all the other ways that you can open it? Did you deal with the space bar? Do, do the arrow keys work? Does the tab keys work? Does the escape key work to close it? Where does the focus go after I leave it? There's like a million things that you have to do. So if you're going to take that into your own hands and do, you better be prepared yo, to do yeah. it right. And you're not going to. <laughs> Even if you have the best of intentions, you'll screw it up. Yeah, I know teams that spent six months writing a JavaScript, like a really you know robust select situation. It's like a huge bundle right. size because you're at Atlassian, and it better have like that fancy blue color around it, otherwise, <laughs> it go or whatever. You know? All right, that's probably a good segue into our picks for this episode. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we love to choose picks of things that we found interesting, want to share with you all. Jem, you want to start it off? Yeah, I have one pick. Uh, this one is my Valley Silicon pick for those uh, Front End Happy Hour regulars. Uh, they should know that Valley Silicon is the part of the show where I pick things that are wildly expensive and they only exist because we here in tech get paid too much money. Uh, mm. so today this one's, uh, probably along the lines for Stacy. Stacy, you're a, you're a music fan as we, we Ooh. will know. Is that, yes, that's correct. Yes. Do you happen to own any turntables for records? I do. Oh, well you should throw all those out because my <laughs> pick is just for you today. Uh, so this one is the Lynn Sontek LP 1250. Uh, it is a very nice looking turntable. 
but what's probably most notable about it is its price tag. How much do you think it is without looking? Mm, How much would you pay for a sound? 800? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's, I was going to guess around the 1K mark. Yeah, 1K for a turntable would be quite a bit. Uh, yeah. You all are pretty close. Uh, so the Lin Sontech is $60,000. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> so you're only off by a little bit. Only. Uh, it, it looks like a turntable. It's It's good looking. Sixty thousand. Wow. Yeah, that's. Uh, I want to see it. Oh, I found a it. Turntable I mean, it's, it's or a turntable. Yeah, that's <laughs> Cole, That was absolutely where my head went. Is like I have a really good sound system in in my Audi, and I'm like, yeah, like I don't know, like I can drive that. I don't need the one turntable. That's you don't even have speakers on this thing. No, uh, I, I think the one, it's limited edition. It's one of 250. And this one was designed by uh, Johnny Ive. Oh, oh my famous, gosh. Very, very, very famous. There you go. Designer, That's uh, why. Worldwide famous. But the question is, is that worth $60,000 to you for a turntable? Yeah, nope. no. Only if you have to <laughs> yeah. lift it up and plug it in from the bottom to charge it. <laughs> you have to ah, flip it over. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. You can't use it while it's charging. <laughs> that would be amazing. Oh my god, you had to turn a crank. <laughs> oh, that's great. I why does the price you'd think what I I want a sixty thousand dollar turntable, but I want it to solve some UX issue. Like I right, want it right. to help me get the record on and off of it or play two records without me walking over to the dang thing. Or just can you solve one UX issue with turntable <laughs> for that price? Yeah. It it doesn't even look like a sixty K turntable. Like no. for that much it'd be like gaudy, like gold and underglow yeah. lighting and yeah, I don't some know. precious it metals in there you. somewhere. Yeah. It, look, it, it does look good. I got to say, you know, aside from the price, it looks it looks clean. I like it. Only 60K, right? No. Is that no. Or, that or a car, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that's my one pick. And um, thank you to one of the front end happy hour regulars who sent it to me because this is perfect. It's amazing. Awesome. And you can send more, to, you know, Valley Silicon picks to Gem on Twitter. He's always open for them. Yes. All right. Stacy, what do you have for us? Sure. I've got one music pick. Um, maybe this this particular song would sound amazing on that $60,000 turntable. Um, it's a Line of Fire uh, featuring Sharon Van Eaton, Junip, Elias, Jose Gonzalez, Sharon Van Eaton, to- Tobias Winterkorn. Uh, it's like a huge lineup of people. But it's an, it's an old song that's just redone with like an amazing uh, cast of characters. And um, yeah, it's just really, really good song. Cue it up. Sweet. Awesome. Cole, what do you have for us? I've got two picks today, one movie and one shoe. Buckle up because I No Hard Feelings is hilarious, hysterical, cringy. It is one of the funniest movies I have seen probably in the last decade. I would put it on the same level as like Superbad. And it's interesting to see Jennifer Lawrence go in that direction in comedy. I my other pick is Crocs. Ryan hates them. I love them. I wear them to Home Depot. I see oh, people wear them what? to the gym. No. Rock out with your Crocs out. They are the no. best backyard <laughs> shoe. I will I will be getting everybody I know Crocs for the next presents. Uh so buckle up your Crocs. No. Do you know that Croc wow. do you do you ever watch <laughs> Idiocracy? Do you ever watch that movie? No, I haven't. 
<laughs> watch Idiocracy in and, my and watch what shoes they choose. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll watch it in my Crocs. But like, I have to say, I used to be a Croc hater until I tried them. I now it's like they're the perfect shoe to go take my dogs for a walk, to go out in the backyard. Don't knock it till you try it. That is fair. I have not tried it. Yeah, like I have not tried it, and I do not plan on trying it, Cole. Please do not buy them. As a gift. <laughs> Chris, what, what kind of picks do you have to share with our listeners? Um, yeah, I was just, just I just have to look around. I think to, to get it. So I kind of forgot about it. But there's the uh, I, what was what is what is Gem called a Silicon Valley pick or something? You know, where yep. it's where it's a little more expensive than it than it needs to be. Perhaps this is not not nearly at that level. But what do you think? What would you pay for a for a mouse pad? Would you think you know, like on average, what's your like? What's they're your free, aren't they? Free. <laughs> yeah, you just go to a conference and fill your bag like with them. twenty bucks. I mean, I think it, I'm, yeah, I'm assuming bucks. yours is maybe the like. Is it one of the larger ones where it's like mouse pad and keyboard? It's not that, although that okay. can be kind of a cool look. You know, I feel like yeah. when you see somebody's fancy, you know, where they clearly picked up their office for once to take a picture of their office and they perfectly center their keyboard on it. No, but it is humongous. It's the Razer Atlas Tempered Glass Gaming Mouse Mat. And it's like, Ooh. what I like about it, all, all, even if it was just like a piece of plastic or leather or something, the size of it is just really nice. I didn't realize how annoyed I was with how small mouse pads were, but I, I also have a desk that can fit it. So if you if you don't, that's that makes sense. But I'll have to here, I guess I'll send the Lincoln Riverside here. You need it anyway, right? It's just a but it's tempered glass, which just makes it super silky smooth. And it's also like a foot and a half wide. And it's $89. So it's not totally crazy, but it's just it's my favorite thing on my desk at the moment. It's just a beautiful. It beautiful looks good. Pad. I gotta say, it is a very like nice looking mouse pad. It is it's really nope. You won't regret it. I'm surprised it's not RGB lit up or what was the Ooh. what's the new color scheme? Okay LCH. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, but it's it exists in real life, and real life has even more colors than okay LCH has. You know? Ooh, good point. Yeah. All right. Well, I like that one, Chris. Um, I've got uh, two picks for us on this episode. One is a snack that everyone needs to just go buy because as a Canadian, you cannot find ketchup chips in the US. But Doritos right now has a Doritos favorite ke or flavored ketchup chip. It's so good. I've already gone through a few bags of them. They're delicious. Uh, so I highly recommend going and trying those. And if it's temporary i'm hoping that everyone buys them and loves them and that they just keep making them because they're so good and then to try and keep on the episode chris you, you wrote a really great article i think some i think it was right after render atlanta after you gave the talk on modern css but there's a really good blog post that chris put together that goes in even more depth of what we've talked about on this episode it's called modern css in real life i will link it in the show notes uh, it's on chriscoyer.net some of those animations too on like that we talked about of the transitions you have some really good examples on that that i think are just worth it in itself so i highly recommend mm, yeah get excited out. people few transitions Very. i mean your passion through this episode has been great so i hope people are excited after listening that they're like yes i need to go use this and try this um you know even just <laughs> jump too. in a code pen and try it like come on this yeah. is like exactly what that's for you know, we should also say that they're really progressive enhance, enhancement friendly too. It's not one of those APIs where you're like, yeah, I'll use that once it's supported. You can, I mean, there's little different approaches, but you can kind of use them now in a way that is no penalty for older browsers. So pretty sweet. 
seat. That is really cool. I mean, I think that's also what I think you mentioned something about in the episode of like how browsers are always trying to like think about that too. And like, you know, that you're not breaking change for some old browser. And I think that that to me has been really helpful to see CSS adding these features natively because they're thinking through that long term. Mm-hmm. Chris, thank you so much for coming on this episode. Uh, I learned so many new insights on CSS. Where can people get in touch with you? I am old school. I I have my name.net. ChrisCoyer.net is my kind of my personal web. That's where that that post is called Modern CSS in Real Life. So if you find that, that's where I'm pointing you to generally. But I'm just kind of an old school blogger, blog about tech and my life and all that crap. And then it points to whatever social networks are hot at the time. I don't even know what to link to anymore. It's gotten it's gotten weird out there. It has. I mean, every other week we have some new Twitter replacement and yet it doesn't yet replace Twitter. So it's been interesting to see that. So yeah. Well, thank you so much again. It was a pleasure having you. For everyone listening, follow us on Twitter at FrontendHH. You can listen to us at FrontendHappyHour.com. Really subscribe to us on whatever you like to listen to podcasts on. Any last words? CSS is awesome. Not like that stupid meme, but it really actually <laughs> is awesome. You know, with the, the new ways of dealing with layout, Stacey, it, that, that mug doesn't really work anymore. No. Cheers. Smash it. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>